If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Matthew chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, um, instead of uh, looking on your phone for that, we would ask that you grab one of the Bibles in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Matthew 11 on page 765 of that Bible. Doubt is a persistent and normal reaction to much of the world around us, and really to everyday events that occur within it. It's something that we might want to avoid, something we might want to bypass, but it's pretty much every day something comes up that we, we doubt. We doubt our ability to achieve certain goals, certain tasks. We don't know if we can schedule things here or there. Sometimes we doubt what other people can do. We, we doubt that they're going to be true to their word. We, we doubt whether they're going to do the right thing. Sometimes doubts are good for us. If you doubt the quality of the sushi you can get at a convenience store, that's a good doubt, friend. It's a good doubt. Sometimes doubts are unwarranted. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they are absolutely indifferent towards any outcome in our lives. But when we deal with things of faith, and certainly in Christianity, faith being so central to it, doubt becomes something that is massive and weighty. It's more than just anxiety or worries that can creep into our lives. It can become a crisis in the lives of believers. And this is, this is heightened for Christians above all other faiths because the only way that we can come to God is through faith. It's belief and trust in Him. Our relationship to God is not based on works. If it's based on works, then doubt, no doubt, plays a role. Doubt has issues for people who base their lives on works, but if it's about doing good things to be known by God, if it's about doing good things to be reconciled to God, then you just go out and do more things. You might doubt that you're doing enough. You might doubt that you're doing the right things, but you can still go out and just do more of it. There's no real crisis. There's just a little bit more work. I'm not trying to set up works as like the way to relieve doubt. Certainly there are problems with that avenue, being that it will never work. But our relationship cannot be based on those things. And our relationship, certainly being based on trust, doubt becomes the problem because doubt is the opposite of trust. Doubt is the opposite of faith. We are to trust and believe in what Jesus has done for us. We know that we can't approach the Lord by works. We are fallen. We are sinful as we have talked about and spoken about as we do every week already. So Jesus has come to do what we cannot do. He lives obediently where we fail. He dies sacrificially our death on our behalf, and he lives again by his own power. And thus, by the great work of Jesus Christ, God saves us sufficiently and wholly. It is God who calls us and elects us. It is God who gifts us with faith. It is God who justifies us. It is God who sanctifies us. It is God who preserves us. It is God who glorifies us. All of this is from God. It is sufficient in everything that he has done that his work is behind it all. We are called upon only to believe. Doubt, then, is a cancer that can wear away at our salvation so that when Christian starts to doubt... It can be crippling and devastating. Not only are Christians, like every other human, prone to doubt, but that doubt is therefore all the more important and perilous to them. 
If you've spent any time in the faith at all, you know that doubts creep in. Sometimes at, at unneeded times, unnecessary times, sometimes you weren't expecting it, you will have moments of doubt. If you haven't, you likely will. But we have good news today. Today we read of doubt and, as always, our help in Jesus Christ for that doubt. So if you would, turn to Matthew 11 and read with me these first 19 verses. In Matthew 11, we read in the word of our God. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor of good news preach to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the word of our God. As we kind of approach the issue of doubt today, specifically the issue of John the Baptist's doubt, the first thing I would put before you is the reality of doubt. Doubt is a reality that you will likely have to deal with in your life. John the Baptist is an incredibly prominent person. Every single gospel mentions him as sort of the the kickoff for the work of God in Jesus Christ. It doesn't begin with Jesus Christ. It begins with John the Baptist. He is currently in prison for his preaching against Herod. There are political things that are keeping John from meeting his final end, but John must know that his life sort of hangs in the balance. Certainly, in any respect, it's soon to come to an end. And given that, he's got questions He was, from before he even came into this world, prophesied about to his father, who was a priest, that he was to be the forerunner for the Messiah. He was to take up the mantle of Elijah, as Jesus says here. 
He was there specifically to point to the Messiah, to say this is the one that we have been waiting for. This was the entirety of his life was spent to do this, to clear the ground for the Messiah to come into Israel. So at at the end of his life, he certainly has to know that, that if his life isn't at its end, it's very close to its end. He wonders... Did, did I perform the thing that God had sent me to do well? Did I do the one thing, the only thing that I was ever supposed to do? If I did nothing else, this was it, was to point out the Messiah. Did I do it well? So he sends his disciples to talk to Jesus and to ask him one very clear question. Are you the one who was to come? Which is the same thing as asking, are you the Messiah? The one that, that, that the people of Israel have been waiting for, the one that will bring us salvation, the one that will do all of the wondrous things that God prophesied and bring to fulfillment all of the promises of God. Now, no doubt, even in prison, he's heard of the works of Jesus. He knows what Jesus has been doing. He knows what Jesus has been teaching. He, his, his disciples clearly know where Jesus is, and they can certainly report back to him these things. While he must have known what Jesus was doing, he also must have clearly expected something different from Jesus. We don't know what that was. It was likely if it was the same common understanding that most people had of the Messiah, that he was expecting some sort of military leadership or political leadership or or even a a priestly way of of cleansing the people of Israel, but none of that was going on. What, What Jesus was doing was on the outskirts of what could even possibly be called Israel as an itinerant preacher. That's basically what Jesus was doing, a healer and a preacher. No great movement. So John asked questions. So are you the coming one? And Jesus gives them an answer, but like Jesus always does, He has asked a yes or no question, and he gives a longer response. He refuses to say yes or no. The answer that he gives, though, is meant specifically for John. Jesus does two things with this particular response. He is is pointing at John and helping John to understand who he is, because he's, he's using a fairly poorly disguised code, but I think a code nevertheless, And at the same time, that code is disguising from the people all around that he is the Messiah. He doesn't actually want them to know that, although he is kind of giving away the farm in a couple different places in here. But he's trying to disguise it from everybody else, so he doesn't want to say yes, but instead he says this to John. He says, go and tell John what's happening, what you see, which John must already know. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. I think that this is a response to John that John's going to pick up on because in Isaiah 35, we hear this about the coming servant who was to do all of the things that Jesus was going to do. This is the role of the Messiah, the servant of the Lord. Say to those, listen to the, the language here, to those who have an anxious heart. That really does describe John the Baptist here. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, Your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. 
Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus is saying, I am him, John. Let your anxious heart be quelled. Let let yourself be calmed by it. John doesn't need the scripture references. He seems as though Jesus believes that this is going to work. At the very least, we should take a lot of comfort in this interaction. John himself was called into the ministry before he was ever born. He was set aside for this role. He leapt for joy even in the womb at the presence of Jesus around him. He was called by God to perform this task. He he did so faithfully. He knew Jesus. He knew the works of Jesus. He saw the works of Jesus. He pointed at Jesus and said, this is the Messiah. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He baptized Jesus. And in all of that, with all of that going for him, he doubted. Friend, if John the Baptist had doubts, it's probably okay that you have doubts. It doesn't eliminate you from the kingdom, from the work of God. It doesn't destroy your life or your place before God, before eternity. If John the Baptist had doubts, it is likely that you will as well. But the reality of doubt is also met with this response of Jesus, right? What does Jesus do? He helps John. The words of Isaiah say to those who have an anxious heart, say to those who who have doubt and unrest. Jesus points him to comfort. He says the very thing to John, which I have no doubt Jesus believes will bring him comfort and strengthen his faith. That as John is facing the end of his days, he knows that he can go before his judge, and hear the Lord say to him, you you did everything that I was hoping you would do, John. You did it faithfully, and you did it well. Reach out to Jesus in those times of doubt. He is here to comfort you. You'll notice that he he doesn't slander John. He doesn't make John feel little. He doesn't, he doesn't try to run him down and say, you can't be like him. You can't ever doubt Actually, what Jesus is going to do, which we'll come to in a bit, is to turn around and defend John as strongly as he possibly can, even in the middle of his doubt. Turn to the Lord with your doubts. Ask him for help and see if he will not provide certainty and comfort and strength for you. There is this reality of doubt. I want then to characterize that in reference to the end of our passage today and the reaction of unbelief. So the second part is the reaction of unbelief, which we come to in verse 16. We'll come to those middle verses here in just a moment, but let's turn then to the reaction of unbelief at the end. There's a comparison here between John and this generation, and it's highlighted by this word but here in verse 16. There's quite clearly a comparison being drawn between John and this generation. If John is the greatest who's ever been born of a woman, what am I going to say about this generation? And it's not good. We don't know exactly who this generation is. Certainly it's the leaders, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. But given that Jesus is 
right after this passage, going to denounce many of the cities that he went to because they refused to believe, they didn't repent of their sins, they didn't entrust themselves to him. It's likely anybody who doesn't, doesn't follow him, doesn't see the works that he is doing and place upon him their trust. The problem with this generation, as Jesus talks about it, is that nothing is, nothing's going to ever be good enough for them. There's no balm that will soothe the sting of their doubt. There's no proof that is ever going to be enough to become reasonable for them to believe. Jesus says that they're like children playing in the market and yelling at the other children. We played the flute for you. We played, we played this, this nice, light, airy tune that's good for dancing. But you refuse to dance. We sang dirges of sorrow, and yet you refused to mourn. You refused to play the way we want you to play. You refused to do the things we want you to do. Nothing is good enough for them. And the fact that Jesus links these directly back to his ministry and John's ministry shows that he's talking directly about their relationship, the relationship of these cities, of the leaders, of the people who doubt, to John and Jesus himself. John came as the sort of stern, hellfire-preaching, austere, and obedient-centered prophet. And they rejected him. They refused to listen to him. They wanted nothing to do with him. So, so stern was he, they said, well, he must have a demon. And Jesus comes dancing and singing. He's full of joy and mirth. And they call him a drunkard, a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and singers. They sang a dirge and despised John. They played the flute and rejected Jesus. God actually gave them everything that they wanted. Do you want a man who's going to come and call for obedience? I sent that to you. Do you want a man who's going to come and proclaim to you my forgiveness? I sent that to you. And yet still you refuse to repent and come back to me. It will never, ever be good enough. John's doubt was not something that would send him out of the kingdom. He believed, but he was asking for help and aid to secure that belief. He's, he's much like the man in Mark, who Jesus asked, don't, don't you believe? And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. John's asking for Jesus to help his unbelief. But this generation, their questions and their problems don't come from a place of belief, but of unbelief. Jesus, I think, is making it clear that nothing's ever going to be good of them. John's doubt seeks conviction of the truth. Theirs is unbelief that disguises itself as doubt and skepticism. But there's no doubt there, because doubt implies understanding and belief underneath it. You've got to have something to doubt. These people don't doubt they simply flat out reject. Jesus, as we will soon hear at the end of chapter 11, will not break a bruised reed or put out a smoldering wick. Where there is faith, he will fan it into flame if he can. But where there is unbelief, where there is just flat out rejection of him, he offers no help. If you struggle with doubt, come to Jesus. 
and plead with him. Ask him for help. Ask him for for guidance. Ask him for assurance. Ask him for a concrete thing to stand upon that you might trust in him and believe in him. Do not let your heart be hardened to a place of rejection and unbelief. Let's let's be honest. This is a typical situation. There are many people who who have very publicly, celebrities or or at least Christian celebrities, who have very publicly left the faith and left the church. And they leave it with some, at times, really good concerns. And some terrible things happen to them within churches. The church is not a perfect place. We admit that some of these, the problems that they've come to are real and true. Sometimes those rejections are just silly and, and unwarranted. But nevertheless, they, they seem to lack this, this desire to actually have their problems confronted. Have they really gone to Jesus and asked him for help and pled with him to remove their doubts? Not just going to philosophers, not just going to history, not just going to YouTube to see if they can find answers to these things, but honestly prayed to Jesus to see if he might come and help and give some comfort, some assurance to their doubts. Jesus stands ready to help, to give aid and direction, strength and faith. Ask and you will receive. But do so before that doubt metastasizes into the full certainty of unbelief. Thirdly, then, to help us in times of doubt, let's talk then about the role of prophesy of prophecy, excuse me. To show that doubt, and specifically this doubt of John's, isn't sort of a disqualifier. Jesus, after his disciples leave, turns and defends him to everyone who's there. There's a crowd there. The the disciples have asked him a question, and he sends them away with his answer. And then when they're gone, he wants to defend his friend, his cousin. He wants to defend this worker in the ministry with him. So he asks a couple of questions. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? John was out by the Jordan. He was preaching out there, not in Jerusalem. He was out there, and and all of the country seemed to be captivated by him. And they all went out there. Certainly, some of the people who were standing there in front of him would have gone out and heard John. He says, what did you go out to see? Was it a reed shaken by the wind? Does John strike you as somebody of unreasonable doubt? Was he someone who was phased by those around him, moved by popular belief or popular unbelief or as someone who lacked some sort of center and conviction? No. There might be many ways to describe John the Baptist, but that ain't one of them. Did you go out to see a man in soft clothing? Well, no. John was not a man who ingratiated himself with worldly leisure. He, he didn't tell people what they wanted to hear so that he could get things off of them. No, you you didn't go out to see somebody in soft clothing. That wasn't who John was. What did you go out there for? John was an oddity. He was strong and passionate. He was different from a lot of people in many respects. And only those who, who knew nothing of him could ever go out there thinking that they were going to see somebody who was anything but the most convicted person that they had ever met. No, they went out to hear a prophet Somebody who would tell them not what they wanted to hear, but what they needed to hear. Prophets are not there to tell people that everything's going to be all right. 
Prophets are generally not there to tell people that, that there is good news and God is going to be okay with everything that you're doing in life. Prophets are generally there to say, repent and believe in the Lord. Prophets are there to speak for God with conviction and certainty. They are to speak of what God desires, of what is necessary before him. And all of them, from the very beginning of Scripture all the way through John the Baptist, simply refuse to play this little song and dance. They refuse to go along with what the people want. Every single prophet everywhere through Scripture seems to speak directly to the people and say, there is repentance and faith needed. John is one of them. But John is not just one of them, Jesus says. He is above all of them. He is not just a prophet. He is more than a prophet. He is the last of the prophets, the prophet of prophets, as it were. So what was so important that John was going to do? Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The messenger is John. And God says, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Interestingly, Jesus changes that to you. Highlighting that particular bit. What Jesus is saying is, that God is standing before you now. John prepared the way for me, and I'm here. That is indeed the role of prophets, and it is the role of prophecy. It's to speak to us, to tell us, to help us to understand one thing and one thing only. Jesus. That's it. It is to highlight the inadequacy of, of all other ways of knowing, of understanding God, of coming before God, of, of looking at the inadequacy of everyone who's come before, of all of the, the things that the Old Testament does that it leaves incomplete, the promises that are not fulfilled, the men who have failed, all pointing the way for one to come who would put all of it back together. The prophets are more than just Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea, they are all who speak the word of God to his people. The entire Old Testament is here to point at Jesus. This is the role of prophecy, to point at Jesus. And that, by the way, is why John is greater than them all, which is an absolutely fantastic statement. Abraham believed at a word. So certain was he in, in belief and in trust at the word of God, that he was ready to kill his son. The only promise that he had that, that all of the promises of God would come true laying on a rock before him, and he was ready to kill him because the word of the Lord told him to do so. He was sure and steady in the faith. Outside of Jesus himself, Moses had performed the greatest miracles of all. He led the people faithfully for 40 years through the wilderness, putting up with them, speaking the word of the Lord to them. Samuel led the people through the dark ages of this sort of floundering priesthood that wasn't doing its job right and leaderless government to bring to it the Davidic dynasty. And then we get to talk about David, the forerunner of the Messiah, the very picture that all other kings are going to be compared to, David. 
That is to exclude the rest of the prophets who stood by faith. And Jesus looks at all of that and says, yeah, yeah, but John. To be honest, we have a lot of information about David. We have a ton of information about Moses. We get a a pretty long look at Abraham's life, and we get a blip of John in Scripture. And Jesus still says that. Why? Why is he greater than them all? If the role of the prophet is to point to Jesus, then John's position as the forerunner of the Messiah allows him to do that better than anyone else. Because no one, they could talk about what the Messiah was going to be like, what he was going to do, but John can literally point at him and say, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I don't need to tell you what to look for. I'm telling you who to look for. And he's right there. He's standing in flesh in front of you. John is the greatest prophet because more than anyone else, he can point directly to the one whom we are to believe in. He was able to point directly at the object of the the prophets who came before him, at their hopes manifested in Jesus. He was able to point at his Messiah manifested in Jesus. He was pointing at the object of our belief in Jesus. The role of all of God's messengers is there to cultivate the anticipation and trust that we are to have in Jesus. John, or, or Jesus is saying, you went out to John, listen to John. You went out to hear a prophet, and he spoke of me. Listen to me. I, you know, people are fond of turning to the New Testament in times of doubt and trouble to, to read the words of Jesus, to be comforted by them. Do that. Honestly, do it. Do it as much as you possibly can. I have no problem with that. I happen to think that the New Testament is rather smashing. Uh, 10 out of 10. I've got no notes. But don't forget that the Old Testament is there to help this very thing. To, to hear the prophet speak of one who was to come. To remedy all of the ills of Israel. And to know that all of that culminates in Jesus is meant to help your faith. It's meant to show you the grandness and the greatness of who Jesus is so that your faith would be cemented and sure that Jesus is everything that anyone has ever said could possibly be great is found in him. No amount of words put together, no no collection of nouns and verbs and adjectives can be placed together that will speak highly enough of who the Lord is. And then, as we come to the New Testament, Know the pains that many have had in pointing you there. Jesus says, since John the Baptist, the kingdom of God has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Number of ways to take that, I'm not even going to go into all the ways that that has been handled. I think suffice to say that because John is in prison and because Jesus has just gotten done delivering a very long message about how persecuted the church is going to be going forward, he means that the kingdom of God as it comes into the world is being fought against by the world. The world is seeking to choke it out. The world is seeking to put an end to the kingdom of God. It fights against the kingdom of God. The violent seek to shake loose the kingdom of God, to choke belief out of those in it. And John and those who come after him suffered from the lashing out of the world against it. They suffered from the fiery darts of Satan. Paul says that he takes up what is lacking in the affliction of Christ in order to bring the gospel forward to people. 
they'd suffer so that the word might go out, so that it might fight the flesh and the world and indeed overcome it. And so friends, don't just look at the prophecies and be encouraged by those things, but look at the men and the women of the history of the church who have stood in a place of contempt, who have stood in in places of persecution and oppression, who do so today, and know that they have a rock faith in the works of Jesus Christ and to be encouraged by them. The role of prophecy is to do just that. It is to encourage and embolden our faith. It is there to remove the dread and the crisis of doubt. So turn to the word of God. And lastly, let's talk real briefly just about the remedy of believers the remedy of believers, because believers are here for your aid and your help as well, especially for you who doubt. I think it's clear, because Jesus says it clearly, that John is incredibly important, and he makes him greater than all of those who have come before him, but then he says something that's more astonishing yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven. So John, of all who are born of a woman, greater than them all. But the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, that implies not born of a woman. We know born of the Holy Spirit, regenerated by by the work of of the Spirit in John 3, by by the kingdom of the air as God reaches down and turns our hearts and, and moves us toward faith in Jesus Christ. The one who is least in the kingdom of God, who has been born that way, he's greater than John. That's you, friend. Not all of you. One of you's got to be less than the others. I don't know who it is. I don't keep a ranking that I'm going to show you. (laughs) But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John because we have a reality that John hoped for. And John could point at the goodness of who Jesus was, and he could say, this is the Messiah. But we don't point to Jesus as a shadow or a hope. We point to him as a known and felt reality of God's demonstrated love and compassion for us. We point to him as the very sacrifice given on the cross. We point to him as the defeater of death, the giver of eternal life. We point to him as the victorious king of the assurance of our hope in heaven, of our righteous high priest. These are not hoped-for realities. These aren't things that we, we think are going to come true or that might come true in the future. They are realities for even the least in the kingdom of heaven now. And so we can point to Jesus in a more full way, with full assurance and conviction that he has actually done these things for us. The least in the kingdom does this. This gives them a grand and powerful importance that dwarfs the the power of the greatest power and principality in the world, of the rich of all those who carry the sword in the world, at their absolute best, people in this world, at the absolute best, can assure people of good in this world. It's not a a small thing. It's not a minor thing. It is a good thing. That is the best they can do. But the one who can point to Jesus, the one who can affirm the truth of the faith once and for all, delivered to the saints, who can encourage the wayward and affirm the weak. That least one has the power not to provide good in this world, but the power to provide an escape from hell in the person of Jesus Christ.
That is no small thing. The portion of Scripture that we find as an antithesis to this is Matthew 18. And in Matthew 18 we read, whoever receives one such child, Jesus is speaking here, whoever receives a a small child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, to slip up, to, to fall into unbelief, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. The putting of a stumbling block in front of a believer, the putting of a, of a, a sin in front of a believer and, and okaying it is an absolutely disastrous thing. And Jesus is very clear. It is better for you. If you are prone to do that, it's better for you just to go tie a rock around your neck and throw yourself off the Mackinac. You better hope. For a quick end, and maybe that God can't find you because he takes it seriously. The antithesis to that is one who doesn't lead people into sin, but who does the work of John. Clears the path. Doesn't provide a stumbling block, but removes them. Encourages faith. Strengthens faith. Guarantees faith for those around them. They're rewarded we're doing exactly the opposite of the person who causes one of the little ones to sin. And this is the role for those of, of you who have a strong faith, which is a gift of God. If you have a strong faith, this is, this is your role. It's to encourage others, to help them. This is what the name Barnabas means. Barnabas has another name in the New Testament. He's, he's really famous in the book of Acts, if you don't know who that is. And we're told immediately when we were introduced to Barnabas that his real name is Joseph, but no one knows his name is Joseph. They just call him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because he's just so good at encouraging people. We are to use our strong faith to help encourage others. And for those of you who might doubt, find people who have a strong faith and talk to them. But I would encourage you not just to talk to them about your doubts, which is what we're prone to do. Talk to them about their faith. Ask them how the Lord has worked. I will tell you, the the most helpful time for elders are when we get to do interviews for people who are going to join. And one of the questions we ask, tell us your testimony. That is incredibly beneficial for us, just as pastors, to hear how God has worked in people in different ways. All of you are incredibly different. And the Lord doesn't have a set pattern for how he brings people and calls people in. He brings them from different backgrounds and different cultures. He, he, he interacts with them in different ways. He brings them from some incredibly unorthodox things and some incredibly normal things. He brings them up in Christian families and he, he calls them while they're in prison. He does a number of different things to bring people in. And it's helpful for us to realize that this is true for those people sitting in front of us. This isn't a fairy tale. It's not something that's out there for us to try and get a handle on. It's, it's real and it's true. God works. So talk to them. Talk to them about their faith. Ask them what it is that, that allows them to hold so tightly onto Christ. These things are a gift to the church. The faith of the strong is meant to be a catalyst for everyone else who is weak and doubting. 
This is, by the way, the greatest calling that we can be given as a church. If you are strong in faith, help those who are weak. The book of Jude tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. Give them direction and hope. Point them to Jesus. So friend, if you find that you doubt, take on that doubt. Live among faithful people. Be here, present among faithful people. Seek out the word of God and pray to Jesus for help because, friends, he will never disappoint. Let's pray. God, may those whose hope is in the Lord be refreshed by your word. May those who doubt be comforted and emboldened in your faith, in the faith that has been handed to us. May those who reject it be convicted to come to a knowledge of the truth. In kindness, we pray that you would bring salvation to your people. Be glorified by our full and sincere trust in your word and your work today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, stand and sing with us our song of response, Wonderful, Merciful Savior.